You're listening to Oh No Lit Class. Mostly dead authors, fresh takes. Ruining required reading, one book at a time. The podcast that puts the sex in the intersectional analysis of classic literature. Or the anal and analysis. We're just real horny for books. That should probably be our tagline. Oh no, lit class. We're real horny for books. Anyway, I'm Megan. I'm RJ. And today, as we continue to responsibly isolate ourselves from the outside world, which, let's be real, if we were actually responsible, we would have kept ourselves away from polite society long ago. Mostly you. We're covering a contemporary YA classic, The House on Mango Street by Sandra Cisneros. Yeah. Yeah, classic. Yeah, <laughs> yes, a yeah classic. It's for young, young adult, if anyone's not aware of that. It's what all the young adults say. Uh, it's been a while since we had an author who was still alive and kicking on the show. I don't know if she's kicking. She might be kicking. You don't know. That's what I said. I don't know if she's kicking. That's exactly what I said. <laughs> Well, I mean, I see pictures of her, and she looks she looks like the kicking type. I wouldn't be surprised if she was kicking. I think, what, the last one we had was Kazuo Ishiguro and his poor repressed butler. Yes. So, originally published in 1983, The House on Mango Street was a landmark novel of its time. Or, or novella, I don't know. It's, it's small. Uh, presenting an account of the young Esperanza Cordero living in a poor Latino neighborhood in Chicago. It's technically fiction, but contains many elements pulled from Cisnero's own childhood. This is a book that, while geared towards a younger audience, does not pull punches regarding topics like domestic abuse, sexual assault, and rape, which, as RJ will get into, has made it a controversial novel that's frequently challenged. So, you ever read this book? Nope. Of course not. Or in Espanol, no. <laughs> Good job. Muy bien. See, si. We're white. It's weird considering that you actually have read a lot more, uh, like, Hispanic and Latin literature than I have. <laughs> I haven't read her. I read, like, her colleagues, like Gloria Anzadula. Oh, so, like, Anzadula. Con- contemporaries? Yeah. Although, it might have come before Cisneros. I did the deep cuts. So That's what we do in academia. Are you suggesting I was not in academia? Nope. Well, you didn't take any uh, classes about not white people. I did. You know, I could tell by your bookshelf. I t- well, my bookshelf is all a bunch of like shitty YA fantasy, which we're going to get into, actually. Mm. Um, we're going to talk about that. Books. Check my receipts. <laughs> check my bookshelf. <laughs> we could check yours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's... Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Oh, that's just because all you saved were books that you had to read in school. You don't have any books that you read for pleasure. So, deep cuts or not deep cuts, whatever the fuck. I was assigned this book in ninth grade, I think. Definitely not eighth. Probably ninth grade. So it would have been 13 at the time. And I have kind of like a weird relationship with it because when i read it i really didn't like it um i didn't like the vignette style it uses to tell its story i mostly thought it was just sort of really boring and that there wasn't anything there for me to grab onto so not a visceral dislike that has stuck with me through the ages the other books like heart of darkness for example have where i could never fully expunge them from my brain because i hate it so much i was this book i was more just kind of meh on but 
even so, it sort of penetrated on some kind of level because there are parts of it that I never forgot about, like chapters and images that I realized rereading this had stayed with me like pretty vividly over 15 Now, like Providence, did it ask before it penetrated you? <sighs> no. No, it did not. They, uh, they stayed with me pretty vividly over 15 years later. So that's a thing. And we'll get there. But first, let's learn about the lady behind the literature. RJ? Take it away. Sandra Cisneros was born in Chicago, Illinois on December 20th, 1954. Daddy Cisneros was Alfredo Cisneros de Moral, and Mama Cisneros was Elvira Cordero Anguiano. Daddy Cisneros was born in Mexico and fought after he dropped out of university after his father, Grandpappy Cisneros, scrimped and saved up enough to send Daddy to university. It's not that Daddy was dumb. He admits he was just lazy, and instead of going home to face the wrath of Grandpappy, he decided to run off to Greener Pastures, a.k.a. Chicago. Yeah, if I, if I had dropped out of school, I'd be doing the same thing. It's like, I'm not going back home. I'm running away. Far, far away. Did <laughs> yeah, you go to Chicago? Maybe. I don't know. As for Mommy Cisneros, her family's roots trace back to one of the poorest areas in Mexico. When Daddy and Mommy got married, they settled into one of the poorest areas of Chicago and had seven kids. Sandy was the third of seven, but was the only girl. Sandy has lamented that she is, quote, the odd number in a set of men. That's gotta be fun. Having one brother? I cannot imagine six brothers. That's, that's a lot. Well, apparently the brothers, as they got older, they more or less paired off. <laughs> and so it was like just three groups of two. Aww. And then Sandy. That sucks. <laughs> Matters were made only worse by Daddy, who always referred to his kids as his six sons and his one daughter. Oh, come on, man. Daddy took up work as an upholster. The job saw him move back and forth between Chicago and Mexico City quite a bit. The family went along for the ride, flip-flopping between the two locales quite a bit. It wasn't until Sandy was about 11 that the family settled down for good in Chicago on a more full-time basis. The family bought a home in Humboldt Park, a predominantly Puerto Rican enclave in Chicago. This neighborhood would later serve as the setting for the house on Mango Street. This move to Humboldt Park was also around the same time that Sandy took up creative writing. Initially, Sandy focused on poetry. She admits that when she first started writing at such a young age that she struggled finding her own voice and she tried to emulate authors she read, who tended to be older, less cultured, and mailer. This did not uh, help her find her own voice, and it really did not match her sensibilities. As she moved on to high school, she became the editor of the school's literary magazine, and she wrote multiple pieces about the Vietnam War. From high school, she attended Loyola University, graduating with a Bachelor's of Arts degree when she was 22. From there, she went to the University of Iowa and earned an MFA from the Iowa Writers' Workshop two years later. You gotta go to Iowa. It's neither here nor there, but it's always been so weird to me that that's, like, the thing. If you're not going to New York to learn how to write, you're going to Iowa. I hear they like a caucus there. Great. That's <laughs> your contribution. They, they sure like, do love their caucuses. Their yeah. cockeye. In corn. Corn, caucuses, and creative writing. <laughs> While sitting in an institute of higher learning in the 1970s in Iowa, this woman of color had a bit of an epiphany. I quote, It wasn't as if I didn't know who I was. I knew I was a Mexican woman, but I didn't think it had anything to do with why I felt so much imbalance in my life, whereas it had everything to do with it. My race, my gender, and my class. 
And it didn't make sense until that moment, sitting in that seminar. It began there, and that's when I intentionally started writing about all the things in my culture that were different from them. The poems that are the city voices. The first part of Wicked Wicked Ways, and the stories in House on Mango Street. I think it's ironic that at the moment when I was practically leaving an institution of learning, I began realizing in which ways institutions had failed me. Maybe that's why you go out to Iowa to learn how to write, because it is only in the vast emptiness of Iowa that you can have a personal epiphany. I mean, you only cockeye every four years. That gives you a lot of time in between. And what are you going to do in between? Corn. And, and, and cre- we, we, we just had this joke. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm doubling down. <laughs> are we coming after Iowa the same way we did Kansas? I don't know what their state motto is. It's probably not as good as the land of Oz. <laughs> or was that their state motto or their tourism motto? Now I can't remember. Our liberties we prize and our rights we will maintain. So it's like the pussy version of uh, live free or die. Mm-hmm. That is also the tourism slogan. <laughs> what? <laughs> How is that a tourism slogan? Give me liberty or give me death. Come see the great state of Iowa. <laughs> uh, the Des Moines Register asked in 2016, does Iowa need a new state slogan and image? <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, Iowa, a place to grow. <laughs> dot, 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 corn. <laughs> well, it's actually Iowa, dot, 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 a place to grow. Oh, okay. So you're supposed to say like, Iowa, a place to grow. Hey, Megan. Remember, though, mm. very good movie based in Iowa, Cedar Rapids. Sure, now, I know sure to, sure Cedar Rapids, I know a lot of people didn't see it. Yeah, it's a pretty good movie. All right, here's a, a potential future motto. Iowa, field of opportunities. <laughs> so basically all of their, their mottos need to be corn-based in some way. Oh, here's the 10 this article was choosing from. Uh, Iowa. Uh, are we going to go through all 10 of these? Was Field of Dreams film there? I guess so. And that's the I joke. guess that could be the joke. That would make sense. Iowa, the good earth. Uh, Iowa, proud of our past, promoting our future. Uh, Come grow with us. <laughs> the smart state. I really want to know what the basis behind that is. Not that I, I'm, I don't want to paint with a broad brush here and say that I was stupid because I don't really have anything to back that up. But where do they get off saying that they're the smart state in particular? Iowa, colon, the way America should be. These are very presumptuous mottos. There's something about Iowa. There we go. That's it. That's oh, no, 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 no. Oh, there's a better one than there's oh, yeah. something about I got, I got a few more here. Iowa, there's something. Iowa, high on the hog. <laughs> what does that mean? Uh, b- 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 what does that mean? Iowa, it's not as flat as you think. Is that just like, what was it? It was Kansas, it's bigger than you think? Iowa, it's not, it's not as flat. We got hills. Oh, wait, wait. Come to Iowa. Hills sometimes. There's more. Iowa, it's easy to spell. You're shitting me. Is this, what, what website is the this? The Des Moines Register. Holy shit. And this one I think is my favorite. Iowa. See, now we're going to say it before I get into this. Megan wouldn't like this. It's too wordy because it's, that's not a slogan. That's a sentence. And I maintain that. As someone who prizes but, the the short to the point sort of phrasings, you, you, you like to get real wordy when trying to quote with titles for episodes. Iowa. Warmer than Minnesota. More fun. 
than Nebraska. <laughs> Iowa. At least we're not these two other states. Well, so what I take away from that is they're less fun than Minnesota. <laughs> they're not nearly as fun as Minnesota. And they're colder than Nebraska. So I was, okay, you know what? I can see why they've just kept the state motto because everything else is shitty. Iowa, we're smart. We're better than these two other states, I guess. Hey, it's not always flat and you can spell Iowa pretty easily. Please come take a creative writing course here. That's all our Iowa fans. War Cyclones. Fuck the Hawkeyes. Sure. I don't know. Well, the, the Cyclones. Yeah. That's Iowa State. Those are the ones who wear the red and the yellow. The ones I like. Okay. Seneca Wallace University. Did, don't you remember sports don't exist anymore? Sports are <laughs> sports are done. They happened and now they're done. And we have I don't to know. You on. might get a live reaction shot of whatever the Dolphins do here in the draft here in a bit. I'm so glad to know where your attention is going to be as we record this. The NFL draft. I mean, it happens once a year. After graduating, getting back to things here, Sandy continued writing and took up work as a teacher at a still relatively new Latino youth high school in Chicago, where she taught high school dropouts. The school still exists today and serves over 5,000 families a year. A great thing to be sure. My only issue with this endeavor is that they have two different mascots for the school. Of course, that's your problem here. Unrelated mascots at that. Oh, no. The owl. Okay. And the gecko. Do they have, like, names? I didn't even get it. I saw an owl. I saw a gecko. Those are their mascots. I went, no. Are they concurrent mascots? Yeah. Huh. You show them together. Does the owl chase the gecko around or something, maybe? It's like the start of a bad joke about what happens when you mix an allergy drug. We're trying to save your money on car insurance. Boo. Which brings us to this week's episode. Wait, what? Of animal mascotting. Sure, it's a word. Yeah, absolutely. With RJ. Brought to you by Geico and Zizel. This is what happens when we have an author who's still alive and they have not had an extensive biography done on them. Got a scratchy throat and stuffy nose that makes talking on the phone when you're trying to save 15% on your car insurance? Get the Geico Zizel combo pack down at Geisel or Zyko. Are you quite finished? Anyway, animal mascots. It's an important decision to make for any institution. Do you go real? Or fantasy? Do you go well-known or obscure? Do you go cartoon or realistic? You do whatever minor league baseball is doing because they're, they're the best at it. Now, for me personally, I strive for realness and obscurity. Give me all the banana slugs, zips, and dock spiders that are out there. Tigers? Dude, that's so overplayed. There's got to be like a billion whatever-the-hell tigers yeah. out there. Bears? Boy, how original. Lame. If you're looking for a solid mascot, here are some options still open for you that are RJ approved. The Tardigrades. Who is listening to this just to be like, man, I have this team and I really need a mascot for it. Although, yes, the fighting Tardigrades. Oh, Megan, I'll have you know. Fantasy sports, they're big. A billion dollar industry. Industry is a strong word. Uh, but yeah, no, your mascot is a tardigrade. You call yourselves the fighting water bears? Like, fuck yeah. Mantis shrimp. How? No one, you, you could, no one's used the mantis shrimp. Again, I mean, well, they might be the, because it's also called the pistol shrimp. Did you notice it? The terror bird. The what? Terror bird. What is that? The terror bird. What, what the fuck is that? It's a bird. It's called the terror bird. Well, what about it is so, so terrifying? 
That's what it's called? Well, or how gonna, about... If you're going to look these up, you should at least give me something. It's work. big and scary. How about, how about the Dementor Wasps? That just inspires fear on many levels. Or the Sea Scorpions. Mm, yeah, these are some good ones. Yeah, it's not that hard, really. But Megan, you know the most important thing of all when picking a mascot? Uh, make sure it's not too horny? You pick one! Okay. This isn't a game of get as many mascots as you can. Why not? Have like three mascots. No. Have more mascots than you have team members. It's not the American way. Remember when the Panthers had three mascots? We had a Stanley C. Panther. We had weird, tiny, inflatable Stanley C. Panther. And we had Victor E. Rat. (laughs) And you know who's a bad hockey team? (laughs) Yeah, but still. We make up for what we lack in competence in amount of mascots. Anyway. (laughs) Anyway. No, I was saying. I like teams that don't even have a mascot. The Green Bay Packers, the New York Rangers. Well, because well, what are you supposed to come up with when it's a Packers? The Meat Packer. Maddie the Meat Packer. That's, no. That's walking around that sounds, with, like, salami over his uh, shoulder. That sounds terrible. I mean, wouldn't it just be, like, really easy to just have, like, a big... Because they're the cheese ones oh, anyway. The, yeah. So just, just, just a big cheese man. Well, they, they go without. Okay. Because they're a good team. I guess. Anyway... This was Mascotting with RJ, brought to you by what you get when you pair a gecko with an owl. Uh, Strange things. A headache. Don't do it, fam. After teaching at the mascot-confused school, Sandy took up an administrative position back at Loyola. Can we agree that the worst mascot is Stanford University? And what's that? It's a tree. The, uh, what's the team name, though? Oh, I don't That's fucking, even oh, worse. I don't know. It, I just know their mascot is a tree. It, it looks very different depending on what year you're looking at it. It looks like it was made out of paper mache and, like, sadness. And sometimes it has a face that looks like it wants to die. I'm okay with the tree, but they're the Stanford Cardinal, the color... <laughs> And the fact that it's singular, it really bothers me. Yeah, that's obnoxious. And then there's just a tree. They're, as they run onto the field, here come the cardinal. Mm. 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 The tree, I'll give it a pass there. It has panache. It has panache. Kind of, yeah, it's, it's got something. Sandra Cisneros, I'm so sorry. <laughs> so back at Loyola, who's known for basketball, uh, you know, she decided maybe, just maybe, I don't know this for sure. She complained about institutions and then went back to one. You know, maybe bring down the institution from the inside. Sure. I, res- I respect the game. After the publication of The House on Mango Street in 1984 when she was 30. Hey, Megan, how old are you? The original was in 83 and um, also shut up. Sandy landed gigs across the country as a writer in residence. The University of Michigan, go blue. Cal Berkeley, And then Our Lady of the Lake University in San Antonio. To me, one of those is not like the other. Our Lady of the Lake. Our Lady of the Lake University in San Antonio. I mean, it sounds cool. Anyway, as I was saying, one of them is unlike the others. Both Cal and Michigan. They use yellow and blue for their colors. Not so much for Lady of the Lake University. This has ended up being a lot more about college sports than I really could have anticipated. We all need an outlet, Meg. What did you think was different between the schools, Meg? I have no idea. Racist. uh, One had a cooler name. Michigan and Cal Berkeley are boring-ass names compared to Lady of the Lake. Michigan is a proud name, I'll have you know. It's the name of a state. It's not interesting. Proud name. She set up shop and worked and wrote in San Antonio for a good chunk of time. While there, she bought a house and made it hers. 
Part of making it hers was painting it periwinkle purple. Hell yeah. This caused quite a stir in San Antonio. She said of this, quote, The day after I painted my house, my house is in all the news. Cars swarming by. Families having their photos taken in front of my purple casita, as if it were the Alamo. The neighbors put up an iced tea stand and made $10. Eventually, like anything in life, this brought the wrong kind of attention, and people told her she couldn't do this, as she tells the tale. Quote, Since my neighborhood is historic, certain code restrictions apply. Any house alteration plans must be approved by the Historic Design and Review Committee. This is to preserve the neighborhood's historic character. And that's fine by me. Because I thought I had permission, I gave the go-ahead to have my house painted colors I considered regional. But as it turns out, they hadn't been approved. However, I was given the chance to prove them historically appropriate. And so, like any good academic, she hit the books, knowing, of course, Southwestern houses come in all sorts of colors, including the ones she chose. The problem she ran into was, well... It was not documented at all, as she came to learn, because the houses she was trying to emulate were those of the poor community that came before her, and they didn't rate enough for their homes to ever be deemed historic. Yeah, that that tracks. That sounds about right. Man, f- fuck the man. Paint your house periwinkle purple. Well, not all was lost. Her and the board reached a compromise, and she painted her house more of a pinkish hue. She sold the house in 2015 for $800,000 after living there for 18 years. From there, she moved to Mexico, where she continues to write. Sandy says that she has a very particular style of forming her ideas and stories. Wherever she goes, she takes notes on conversations she hears. Basically, she eavesdrops on everyone. She then copy and paste conversations together to see which fit the best together and goes from there. As for names, she goes through the phone books from the area she writes about, and she mix and matches first and last names together. She says that this is a way for her to not really appropriate anyone's specific story, but it's rather writing something that's believable, true, and relatable to the community at large. This reminds me of the naming scheme of all those folks on Evergreen Terrace. From real life to art. Amazing. You don't know this? Matt Groening, he like stole the names and like partially the characters from people he grew up with. I did not know that. Lazy. Got the Simpsons in. Thanks. There you go. Simpsons reference in in the can. Oh yeah, wait, that's right. Shit. I realize that this is an episode basically entirely composed of tangents, but we have to address something from the last episode that you just reminded me of. So Did anyone did anyone mention this? No, but I'm gonna bring it up anyway. In the previous episode, um, on the turn of the screw, we somehow got into conversation about the Mel Gibson film The Patriot. I don't remember how we got there, but we sure did. And I had never seen it, and you led me to believe that it ends with Mel Gibson stabbing the villain uh, through the heart with the American flag. Time out. I think we need some imaging for this uh, section of the show. We'll call this uh, Correction Corner. Yes, okay. This is Ono Liklas Corrections Corner. (laughs) This Correction Corner. There's only one correction to be made here. I suppose. And so it was only after the episode had been out in the world that RJ realized that he conflated a Simpsons episode with the actual film for The Patriot. Well, <laughs> they both starred Mel Gibson, and on The Simpsons, in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, the way that version ends, Izzy throws the American flag through some senator's chest. <laughs> and so that became the ending of The Patriot for me also. Instead of The Patriot, he kind of just stabs the guy in the heart with a knife. Not a flag. 
Yeah. It would have been better with a flag. Media is much more exciting in RJ's head where everything just kind of swirls together. It is. <laughs> okay, that was the end of Ono Class Correction Corner. <laughs> we now return to the podcast a- again. So one thing that Sandy was always asked about is the fact she never married, never had any children. She said of this, quote, I've never seen a marriage that is as happy as my living alone. My writing is my child, and I don't want anything to come between us. She spends a lot of time and energy on trying to support others in her community to write as well. She plays instrumental roles with the Macondo Foundation and the Alfredo Cisneros de Morale Foundation, which is named after her father. The foundation's focus on bringing writers in the community together and also support them financially so similar voices continue to write and make themselves known in the literary canon. In her bio, I think in like the original little author's bio on the House on Mango Street, it says that she is nobody's wife and nobody's mother. Very good. Yeah. Some literary critics state that Sandy is the most important and most prominent Chicano writer within the Chicano literary movement. She said of her own success as far back in 1991, quote, I think I can't be happy if I'm the only one that's getting published by Random House when I know there are such magnificent writers, both Latinos and Latinas, both Chicanos and Chicanas in the U.S. whose books are not being published by mainstream presses or whom the mainstream isn't even aware of. And you know, if my success means that other presses will take a second look at those writers and publish them in larger numbers, then our ship will come. In 2015, she won the National Medal of Arts, which was presented by President Barack Obama. In 2019, PEN America awarded her the PEN Nabokov Award for Achievement in International Literature. Now, before I turn this over to Megan, one thing we like to talk about here on Ono Lit Class is the issue of book banning, or really, more precisely put, book challenging in schools. House on Mango Street has been challenged a number of times due to its themes and language. In 2012, the book was voted by the school board to be removed from the curriculum in St. Helens, Oregon, due to, quote, concerns for the social issues presented. This is just always the bits that just blow my mind because it's like, this draws attention to negative things and we can't have our children reading about negative things. But an old-fashioned letter-writing campaign saved the book, and it was allowed to stay on the curriculum. How about that? In May 2010, the state of Arizona passed a bill that in part prohibited courses or classes that, I will read from the bill here, quote, promote the overthrow of the United States government, promote resentment towards a race or class of people, are designed for pupils of a particular ethnic group, or advocate ethnic solidarity instead of treatment of pupils as individuals. What the fuck? The target of this bill were courses on Mexican-American culture and studies. What the fuck? Yeah, they basically tried to ban Mexican-American study courses, classes, books. But just even the wording, like, I feel like you have to be some kind of fucking... Like, I mean, I know we see the, like, you know, the, the banality of evil and that it, it's just going to be some crusty white person. But it's like, I just feel like with that language, I picture like a goddamn Bond villain sitting there with his fingers steepled like, yes, you will not allow to see any sort of like 
what was it? The no ethnic like representation or anything towards the particular race? Like, oh my god! Or designed for peoples of a particular ethnic group? Yeah, you can't have books that are made for you. Like, or what the advocate fuck? ethnic solidarity instead of treatment of peoples as individuals. What the fuck? A quote from the show written by a supervillain. Except no, it was written by a regular person, which is worse. Oh, people. People. Which is worse still. <laughs> well, and then a majority of the Arizona legislator, governor, yeah, everyone signed it. Mm-hmm. A quote from the show, The Wire, comes to mind that I will edit slightly. The scariest thing to white people in America is a black person with a library card. Yes, you did. That was, that was edited <laughs> for language. Um, Clearly, the Arizona legislator agreed with the assessment of one brother Mazone. <laughs> hey, The Wire is always relevant. Initially, the Arizona legislator won in the lower courts, and the classes and programs were not funded beyond 2012. Given how fast justice moves, in 2017, seven years after the bill was passed, uh, federal judge A. Wallace Tashima said in a ruling that overturned the lower courts and struck down most of the bill that, quote, both enactment and enforcement of the bill were motivated by racial animus. Nah, you think? Despite perhaps the just ruling, the fact it took seven years to get it meant the courses and programs had been shuttered for five years, so yeah, justice the way it is, no justice at all. Good news is, y'all can read it, or even better, listen to Megan talk about the ins and outs of the text and make up your own damn minds. Hey everybody, it's Megan, your favorite lean, mean, quarantining machine. Checking in, saying hi. You know, doing doing the usual things that I do at this point in the episode. Which is to say thank you to our wonderful, beautiful, amazing patrons. And not to sound like a broken record, but especially now more than ever. It's everybody who helps donate to the show is fucking great and making a significant difference and so we really appreciate it pledging to the show even just a dollar can make a huge difference get your get your name on the show and going up from there can get stickers uh voting on what we do next access to bonus content posters bookmarks t-shirts even choosing what we like just straight up saying you you have to do this you don't have a choice. This is the episode you're doing. And we gotta be like, well, I guess this is it now. It's it's, it's a thing. Go on. Look it up. It's at patreon.com slash on a lit class. Nextly, it's been a egregiously long time since we did a pod pals. I know. It's it's not good. I know I said last time that if if you're a pod, like, let's become pals and, you know, to reach out and you know, send us your promos to onalitclass at gmail.com, but people just don't do that. Send me your promos. Pods, let's be pals. This is a threat. And also a form and friendship to go hand in hand. It makes sense. Anyway, this week's Pod Pals is the irrationally exuberant hosted by Reed Messerschmidt, a previous guest on the podcast. Uh, Reed came in on our episode on Ethan Frome, which if you listen to, you already know that he's an insane person, and therefore you sh- his show is absolutely worth listening to. He's just a crazy, funny, wild dude, and his show is always just an absolute trip to listen to. 
He's just super funny, and you should absolutely check him out. This is the Irrationally Exuberant. I'm Reed Messerschmidt. Family, friends, fans, Bono, I see you over there. Looks like a carelessly basted turkey with the head still on, but the head got stung by a bee and it's allergic to bees. Johnny, are you awake, Johnny? Yes, Bigfoot. I was just smelling your arm fur and thinking about how much I love you. I love you more than that old moon and his bright little friends and stars. This is the story of the time I found myself in front of the frying pan at three in the morning, drunk of course, wearing a blood-stained suit and a backpack full of potatoes. This is the story of the time a grizzled old hobo asked me if I was okay. The Irrationally Exuberant is a podcast, but also art. Find it at theirrationallyexuberant.com, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Iceberg Slim and B. Zenroy Orbison. What could these things possibly have in common? Megan? Jesus, I'm just, yeah. Okay, so the the house on Mango Street as uh, summarized and, and analyzed about as well as a, a, as a white person can do. So it's a bit difficult on that note to provide a full summary for the house on Mango Street because it doesn't really have a plot in the traditional sense. The 44 chapters are all little episodes unto themselves, most extremely short and loosely tied together through our main character Esperanza, her family, and the people around her in her neighborhood. They're told in the first person and present tense, so they're more like a collection of experiences that she has than anything else. It's it's almost more like their prose uh, poems. And that's partly why I think I had such a hard time with it when I read it at age 13, because I was just like, nothing's happening, nothing's happening, when is something going to happen? Because I was a pretty basic kid. I was reading Aragon, 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 whatever, at that age, and that tells you pretty much everything you need to know about me at 13 and my personal tastes. But so to that effect, uh, actually in 2009, Cisneros wrote a new introduction to the novel where she said uh, that when she first came up with the title, she had included several stories, poems, and vignettes that she had already written or was in the process of working on. And she said, quote, she does not consider the book a novel, but a jar of buttons, a group of mismatched stories that were written over different periods of time, the first three being written in Iowa as a side project when she was working on the MFA. And so when she was kind of trying to put it all together, she said she wanted it to be, quote, a book that can be opened at any page and will still make sense to the reader who doesn't know what came before or comes after. And what you said before about the people she wrote about were sort of amalgamations of people she'd met over the years um, and that she sort of just mushed it all together that while you know it's a story with a beginning middle and end sort of not really in the traditional sense that she says that all the emotions felt are hers so because of this it's almost easier to explore the themes of the book and bring in chapters that talk about that theme than to go through it chronologically because it's not really super chronological and so that's what we're gonna do because it's easier and that's how we rule here and a lot of them will also overlap with each other thematically but like it's fine it'll be great so the book begins and ends, as one would expect when the title is The House on Mango Street. Oh, Peachtree Street. Nope. Oh. That's Georgia. This is Chicago. Oh, it starts with Michael Jordan. Yeah, it's it, it bookended by Michael Jordan. Swish. Uh, no, the novel is bookended with the concept of home, obviously. 
in this house on Mango Street and the idea of home and what a home means. And uh, the novel itself opens with Esperanza explaining that her family's never had a home, not like a proper one. They've all been sort of temporary situations and renting apartments and that they had to leave their last apartment on Loomis uh, in a hurry because the water pipe broke and the landlord wouldn't fix it. And so that her parents have always sort of promised their children, who it's Esperanza, her sister, and I think two brothers, that they've always promised them that they would live in a real house where everything worked and it had a specifically a fancy staircase. You know it's a real house when it's got a fancy staircase. So what's a fancy staircase to you? I guess, like, when I think of a fancy staircase, I think of one where, like, the banisters are, like, really big and wide and long enough that, like, you could, like, slide down them, like, in a movie. Now, is it, like, straight? Does it have, like, a landing? Is it, uh... Oh, is it, like, one of those... Cr- I guess like a, I guess, like, a swirly, like, iron rot staircase would also be very fancy. Do you have a fancy staircase of your imagination? Yeah, an elevator. If I can own a house <laughs> with an elevator, you know I've made it. Some would say an elevator is the fanciest staircase. Now, I will settle for, like, you know, the, the elevators for the old people that slide up and down. Oh, the ones that just... Like, on like, the roundabout. Right, yeah. Yeah. That's fancy to me. I, I guess, because you don't got to use your legs. Um, so the, the house on, on Mango Street, unfortunately, is is not any of this. It's not big. It's not fancy. All six of them have to share a bedroom together. And it's just this very depressing house. And Esperanza is extremely disappointed. And at the end of the chapter, she recalls the moment where she was like, you know what, one day, no, fuck this, I'm going to have a real house. And it was back when she... When they were all still living at this apartment on Loomis and that she was playing in the front yard, or not the yard, because there isn't a yard, but she was playing in front of it and a nun from her school walks by and is just like, is this where you live? Like she literally just points to it and it's just like this, you know, it's a sad old building and it's just like, child, do you live here? And Esperanza is like so embarrassed and she wants a home that she can point to without feeling ashamed. By some nosy asshole nun. But yeah, she wants she wants roots. She wants a place that she can come from that she's not embarrassed by. With a nice staircase. With a nice staircase is important. And the theme of home comes up quite a bit, but a lot of it is more towards the end of the book. So I'm going to skip over to the next theme and kind of come back to that. And so obviously another thing is poverty and class you know, structure and stuff like that. And the best introduction to this is a chapter called Those Who Don't, and it's really short, and it's more just kind of, again, it's like a prose poem, so I just kind of want to read it because it really, it's just a really good example of the writing in the book and just touching on the themes of, like, the neighborhood of Mango Street and, and whatnot. So it's called Those Who Don't, and it says, Those who don't know any better come into our neighborhood scared. They think we're dangerous. They think we will attack them with shiny knives. They are stupid people who are lost and got here by mistake. But we aren't afraid. We know the guy with the crooked eyes, Davy the baby's brother, and the tall one next to him in the straw brim, that's Rose's Eddie V, and the big one that looks like a dumb grown man, he's fat boy, though he's not fat anymore, nor a boy. All brown all around, we are safe. But watch us drive into a neighborhood of another color, and our knees go shakety-shake, and our car windows get rolled up tight, and our eyes look straight. Yeah, that is how it goes and goes. I'm a, I'm a joke. It's just good. It's good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we learn about a neighbor of hers, Louie, who has an older cousin named Marin, 
who lives with the family and is in charge of babysitting Louis's little sisters, and she's stuck in the house all the time. Um, Marin is just one of the many housebound women in this book, which we will get to. And there's one interlude where uh, it's the, the name of the chapter, I think, is like Louis's other, other cousin. So, other than Marin, he has another cousin who drives up to Louis's house in like a big fancy Cadillac and everyone's like oh where'd you get it oh can we ride around it they ride around in it and then they hear police sirens and Louis's cousin makes everybody get out of the car and he takes off speeding and he, then he crashes into a lamppost and they take him away to jail and as they put him in the car and they're driving off with the sirens the kids all wave as he leaves I feel I feel bad. I don't know. It's like, if I'm not like sure a if I'm queen to... wave. Yeah, like a queen wave kind of wave. oh yes oh, there we go Hello. yes you keep your hand cut Less fun is back to Marin that there's a chapter where she meets a man named uh, Geraldo when she's out dancing. Rivera? No. I mean, he has that name. Yes. You realize there could be more than one person with, with a name. Geraldo Rivera? We don't, we don't know Geraldo's and last we, and name. Plus, he was in Chicago looking for uh, Al Capone's vault? closet, vault? tomb, I don't know. Vault? The vault. I think it was the vault. Yeah, with nothing inside. Yep. That was good work. God, how now you can find him on Fox News. We are so old. We are so fucking old. Nobody is going to know what that is. <laughs> they should look it up. It's pretty good. It is pretty good. Look up Parado Rivera and his supreme fuck-up that is Al Capone's vault. The guy's an idiot. He's also the same one who was writing out troop positions on TV in Afghanistan, wasn't he? I think so. <laughs> We're here. He's a real, yeah, he's a real sharp one. Um, but he got, hey, he got a bitch and stash. This Geraldo is one that Marin meets uh, at a dance that she goes to, and even though she just meets him there and dances with him, she is ends up being the last person to see him alive when he dies in a hit and run. He doesn't have any ID on him, so she just knows he's Geraldo, and she has to be at the hospital and the police, and she's like stuck in the emergency room all for this guy that she just met that night. But she also seems to be the only person to like care that he's dead. The surgeon doesn't even bother going to the emergency room to, to try to help. Nobody knows the restaurant that he used to work at and that he would, like, send money home to his family. And Esperanza says that, you know, she can kind of only speculate that his family back home, wherever that is, is always going to wonder what happened to him. That he's just going to be Geraldo who left for America and we never heard from him again, which is a bummer. <laughs> it's going to be a problem with a lot of this. That's going to be a theme with some of these where I'm just going to stop and be like, mm, that's a bummer. And so it ends. Yeah. This is a hard episode to, to do jokes for. In that similar vein, there's a chapter called No Speak English where they talk about a man across the street from where Esperanza lives who works like crazy to bring his wife and child to the United States. And her name is Mamacita. And she's just this big lady all dressed in pink. And she has a, a baby boy. And once she gets there, she never comes down from the apartment, which again is a running theme. And she's miserable because she just doesn't speak English and doesn't feel like she can interact with anyone. She knows three phrases in English. No speak English, holy smokes, and he not here. Those are important things to know. What phrases do you know in Espanol? Uh, I, I know how to say that I speak it badly. Go ahead, let's hear it. <laughs> no hablo espanol. No, that's or, that yeah. you don't speak Spanish. Well, that's not exactly what you said. If they say, do, you, you know, do I hablo espanol, I have to be like un pequeño. That's right. <laughs> what else? Um, I don't know. I know word. That's the thing. Like, I know broken Spanish. I know enough that if someone comes through and they're speaking in Spanish and they know enough broken English, we can figure it out. Who's this? Gato Negro. 
He's all curled up. Look at his little hands. He is. His little paws are all curled. I just suck at languages in general. My French is is also awful, and I took a lot of French. Um, What Spanish phrases do you know, champ? Hola, que pasa, que tal? Ay, Dios mío. Uh, Yeah. Lo siento. Que hora es? Que hora es? (laughs) Donde está la biblioteca? Hay un gato en mis pantalones. Sopa de pollo es muy caliente. Puta! No! Mierda. No, yeah, of course, you know, you know, yeah, we know the cusses. We both grew up in South Florida. (laughs) Yeah. We know how to cuss in the Spanish. Pinga! Stop! (laughs) Stop it. So Esperanza's father says when he first came to the States, he ate nothing but ham and eggs for three months, because that's the only thing he knew how to, like, order at, like, a diner or anything, because that was, like, the only English that he knew. And so he was just stuck eating it. And so there was all this work to bring Mamacita and her child to the U.S. And she stays at home all day listening to Spanish radio and singing songs in Spanish and being homesick. And her husband yells at her to speak English because she's in the United States now. And her her baby son begins to learn English from what he sees on TV and that she keeps telling him over and over again, no speak English. Don't do it. So another big theme in the book is gender because Esperanza feels a part of like a part of her what she wants to do is she wants to escape from Mango Street not necessarily because she wants to get out of poverty but also because she wants to get out of very very strict uh gender roles she recounts that she was named after her grandmother who was a woman who refused to get married until one day her grandfather Esperanza's grandfather I mean uh put a sack over her and carried her away and was like we're married now or her great-grandmother not her grandmother her great-grandmother never forgave him, which, yeah, can't say that I blame her, and that she just spent the rest of her life looking out the window. Again, it's a theme. We've got a lot of women trapped in houses. So one of the first things we learn about Marin is that, uh, apart from having to babysit all of her cousins, she has a boyfriend in Puerto Rico, and he's unemployed, so she's the one who's like saving money that she's selling like makeup and stuff. And babysitting, and she's going to go back to Puerto Rico and marry him. And she wants to get a job downtown and wear pretty clothes and maybe, like, meet a cute boy on the subway who will marry her and take her away to live in a nice house. Marin is kind of like Esperanza's source of information on things like boys and sex and stuff like that because she'll actually talk to her. Uh, Marin is only allowed out of the house at night because then she's not having to watch after her cousins or anything and even then she's only allowed out as far as the front yard where she can listen to the radio and smoke some cigarettes can't go any further than the front yard oh that's better than most of us right now (laughs) i mean yeah this specific instance and then we get a chapter called alicia who sees mice and we learn about alicia who hallucinates mice she says she sees mice that infest their home and her dad tells her that they don't exist that they're a product of her imagination and her mother has died and he says that like she she needs to sleep more because she needs to wake up in the morning and make tortillas for the family because that's what her mom used to do and alicia is like no i'm going to college because i'm getting out of here i don't want to be replacement mom i don't want to be replacement wife and on that note we also get uh intimations that her dad is molesting her which dovetails pretty nicely into my theme Men are the worst ever, holy shit. Because... Agreed. Gosh, pretty much every female character in this novel is trapped by either uh, 
an abusive partner or teen motherhood or something to that effect, except Esperanza. And even Esperanza cannot escape uh, men being shitty and terrible. But we'll get there. So we've got two other women who are mentioned who are examples of sort of that they have been restricted by their gender and by their by the men in their lives that control them, either their husbands or their fathers. We learn about Rafaela, whose husband locks her away indoors when he goes out because he's afraid she's going to run away because she's so beautiful. And it says that on Tuesdays, uh, he stays out late and Rafaela leans out of her window to like listen to the music coming from the bar next door and that she asks Esperanza and her friends to go to the store and buy her either coconut or papaya juice and she does this that she hurls money down to them and they bring her the juice in like this fucking Rapunzel ass pulley system where they like get it back up to her and like she's she's literally trapped in a tower (laughs) because she's too hot according to her husband yeah (laughs) yeah yeah like, I don't know what else you can say to that. I mean, there's a lot of, like, analysis that can be done because this is obviously not just, like, a men suck. It's within a very specific cultural context that I don't feel qualified to comment on because I am white and I have not done me- Mexican-American studies courses. So all I can kind of do is sit here and be like, fuck, dude. In Espanol, por favor. Chingada or mierda. It's unclear. So after Marin and Alicia and Rafaela, we also have poor Minerva. Uh, Minerva is actually only a little older than Esperanza, who, again, is like 12 or she's like 13. But Minerva already has two kids, and she's raising them by herself because she has a husband who keeps leaving her and coming back. And Minerva writes poetry, and she and Esperanza read each other's poems because Esperanza is also a, a budding young writer. Minerva at one point kicks her husband out of the house and throws all his stuff out, but then she ends up letting him back in. And the next time Esperanza sees Minerva, she's covered in bruises, because her husband beats her. And so Minerva's kind of like a, a a potential future for Esperanza, who is, you know, a smart, who's a writer, and that this is a future she could end up with where she can't, you know, is she that her talents are kind of going to waste and she's trapped in a marriage she's still a teenager and she has a husband who won't raise the kids and beats her and so this is kind of like the exact sort of thing that she's looking at and being like i gotta get away from this this is no good uh we get a similar story from her mother that her mother can sing opera and her mother's so smart but she quit school because she said she felt bad because she was so poor and that her clothes were like raggedy and that she was ashamed of herself. So she just like stopped going to school. And she doesn't really do anything either. And so the other major things we get are, you know, adolescence and budding sexuality. Because she is, you know, on the verge of like having puberty happen. And there's one episode where Esperanza and her friends Lucy and Rachel are gifted three pairs of high-heeled shoes that they're they're old like hand-me-downs that someone was getting rid of and they give them to them and they have a fucking ball that they take off their like little knee socks and that they they're wobbling around in the high-heeled shoes and they feel so adult and they're like yeah look at me and my fancy shoes this is so cool and they're like walking up and down the corner and the owner of the corner grocery store mr benny says you gotta take those shoes off those shoes are dangerous and they're like i don't know what you're talking about these heels are awesome like dangerous like we're gonna fall over nah these are great we're we're great and then a boy on a bike 
hollers at them, you know, in a in a sex way. And then a homeless guy tells Rachel that he thinks she's pretty and he says, I'll give you a dollar if you'll kiss me. And they're like, oh no. And then they run away. And then they're like, we don't want to wear the shoes anymore. We are going to reject uh, this symbol of adult femininity and the unwanted male attention it brings. It's, it's just too real. Too real? Too real. But This relates to your wife? I mean... Not at the moment, no, but the idea that girls, that children are already being seen as sexual objects so early on, just as soon as they put on like a pair of high heels kind of thing is, is fucked up. And this is especially true for girl for uh, girls of color, even more than white girls, that they get targeted very early on as being like somehow more like sexual or something like that. And... It's just creepy and gross. But they're still not kind of sure how they feel about male attention because we also get a section called hips where they're jumping rope and they're talking about when their hips are going to come in and that they're going to have like sexy lady hips. It's going to make jump roping harder. Yeah, well, <laughs> but they're going to bring the boys around. But um, they're the worst. Keep them away. <laughs> well, see, but that's the thing. It's confusing because Esperanza feels like boys don't pay attention to her and that she's not attractive to men and she's like it's this weird confusing thing where it's like maybe she wants to be with a boy but it might just be because she sees other people with boys but whenever she gets male attention it's not good and it's very much enforces this thing of like it's it, it always ends badly and so there's a section where she says in the movies there's always a beautiful woman who attracts all of the men but she she never gives in to any of their advances that her sex appeal gives her power and she doesn't give it away that she wants to be beautiful and cruel is the phrase that she wants to be like the femme fatale but she she never gives the guys what they want and that's kind of her way of balancing these conflicting kind of feelings that she's having but maybe that's what guys want most of all is it? I don't know. Four-dimensional chest, baby. And then we get a section where we learn that Esperanza has been planning to get a job to pay for her tuition once she's going to be attending a Catholic high school because it's going to be expensive. And her aunt, Lala, comes over and says that she could hook her up with a job at Peter Pan Photo Finishers and that it's in the city and that she needs to lie and say she's a year older than she actually is. So she does that. She, she, she puts on a dress that apparently makes her look older. She shows up at the photo lab. She lies about her age. She starts the job that day. And she finds the job easy, but there's like this cute part where she's really nervous that she doesn't know if she's allowed to sit or when she's allowed to sit. So she's standing the whole time until she sees the old ladies that she's working with also sit. And then she sits and they start laughing. They're like, you can sit when you want. It's okay. Yeah, context clues. I mean, that, Read others. That part is cute. The second part is not. There's another employee there who, because she doesn't know where to sit at lunch because they're all kind of adults and she doesn't know anyone. And there's an older Asian man who says, hey, you can sit with me at lunch next time. I'll be your friend. And Esperanza's like, oh, what a sweet old man. And he's like, hey, today's my birthday. Can I get a birthday kiss? And she's like, oh, you old man. Yeah, I'll just like give you a kiss on the cheek or whatever. And then he grabs her fucking face with both hands and kisses her on the mouth like a dirty fucking old pervert. Yeah. Is, is bad. Again, we come to a section where I have to say there's no joke here. It's just bad. Here is another example of men predatoring on a child. And then we get to Sally. Poor, poor Sally. Sally is a girl who goes to Esperanza school and she's apparently very beautiful. She wears makeup. She wears like fancy kind of clothes. But her father is extremely strict and religious. And 
So the Esperanza sees Sally like coming home after school and like rubbing off all her makeup and pulling her skirt down and doing all of that. And Esperanza wonders, you know, if Sally wishes that she didn't have to go home, but that she could go to a house all her own. Esperanza kind of projects onto Sally a lot and the kind of person that she is. And then we get a chapter where Sally comes to school covered in bruises a lot, saying that she fell and no one actually believes her. And she does eventually confess to Esperanza that her father beats her and she tries to make it not a big deal, saying that, you know, he never hits her that hard or anything. He just beats her and he thinks that, you know, because she's female that she's going to shame the family and run away with a man because that's sort of the prevailing theme here. She, uh, at one point, is gets away from her dad. She, she's allowed to stay with Esperanza's family and it seems like that she's safe but then her dad comes at night to the door and he's crying and he's like come home I'm gonna be better it's gonna be good just come home and she does and then he sees her talking to a boy and he beats her so bad she can't go to school da 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 yay (laughs) oh wait no boo yeah no uh and so then we learn about this thing called the the monkey garden because someone who owned a monkey used to have the garden and now it's an overgrown garden where they all go to play games. People do comment that Esperanza is a little old to be playing around with kids and stuff and that's, again, where we cut into that thing of, of the budding, you know, puberty stuff. And she sees Sally saying that, you know, oh, she's she's too old to be playing these games and she stays behind to flirt with boys and that they steal her keys, and they're saying, oh, we're gonna give them back to you if you give us a kiss. And Esperanza kind of misreads the situation and is like, you know, oh my god, no, I have to save her. And she runs up to one of the boys' moms, like, at their house, and is just like, hey, like, this is what's happening. And the mom doesn't see what the big deal is, and she's like, you know, hey, boys will be boys, girls will be girls, this is just something that happens and Esperanza is like, fuck that. I'm going to rescue Sally myself. And she she grabs some sticks and, and, a, and a fucking brick because she's hardcore. And she runs back over and she's just like, I've got you, Sally. And they all look at her like she's nuts. And Sally is like, go away. I'm going to kiss boys now. And Esperanza goes and runs the other end of the garden where she cries and just sort of feels terrible. And she says the garden feels like it doesn't belong to her anymore. Because, you know, now it's a place where kids do horny things. And uh, this chapter is immediately followed by one that goes back into that category of men are the worst ever, holy shit. And it's a surreal sort of vague description of Esperanza getting left behind at a carnival by Sally, who ditches her for a boy. She's then accosted by a group of guys who keep saying, I love you, Spanish girl. And one of them forces a kiss on her. And she talks about how everyone has lied to her about sex and how it feels, basically indirectly saying that one of the boys rapes her. Which is fucking terrible. And just, you can tell from, like, the sparseness of the chapter that and, and the weird vagueness of it that she's tried to block it out kind of as much as she can. And she says she can't really remember exactly what happened. It's, it's bad. Archie's just nodding at me because we're both just sitting here like, well, what do we say about this? So the next story you're about to read, they win the lottery? Yes, they win the lottery. And, and they get their staircase? Yes, they get their fancy staircase and everything is great. But, but no, um, actually... Actually, in the chapter right after that one, Sally's ultimate uh, fate, at least within the scope of the novel, that she gets married to a marshmallow salesman. Not when she's older, but now. When she's, quote, not even in eighth grade. So, 13, basically. I think. 13, 14. I don't know. I was in, I was 
I, I don't remember what the normal one is because I was 13 in ninth grade, but... 14. Yeah. 13 or 14, depending. Like, again, too young to marry a man. Marshmallow salesmen are otherwise. And so Esperanza thinks, you know, oh, well, Sally got married to escape her fucking terrifying father. And she lives in a house now. And she says she's happy. But here's the thing. Her husband will also get violent and beat her. He also won't let Sally talk on the phone or get too close to the window or get visited by her friends. She, she's stuck at home because she's afraid to leave the house without her husband's permission. So she has traded one prison for another, effectively. And so it's creating this sort of narrative that the women here, you know, on Mango Street or, you know, Chicano women in general are trapped in this cycle where they are kept in check by their father, oftentimes abusively, only to be passed off to a husband who is going to do the same thing, that they can't be free. And that's why, even though on one hand, Esperanza kind of wants boys' attention, she's just like, I'm never going to be in that situation. And so that very much comes through in Cisneros' own life, where she remains, you know, unmit. She's not married. She's not a mother. That we can read that maybe Esperanza is successful in avoiding these things because in the way that Cisnero was, by remaining independent. And to that end, we get back to the stuff about home. It's where the heart is. Actually, it's funny you say that. So there's a chapter called Elenita Cards Palm Water. So Esperanza goes to see Elenita, who is a, quote, witch woman. And she goes over to her house, which is full of voodoo posters, candles, and little kids running around watching cartoons and stuff. And that she does like a, almost like a tarot card reading and she like reads her palm and she is like, you know, what do you want to know? And Esperanza's like, well, do you see a house? Do you see anything about a house in my future? I'm very focused on the house. And she's like, I see a home in the heart. And Esperanza is like, that doesn't have a fucking staircase in it. So that's really not what I want to know about. And then she has to pay her $5 anyway. And this ends up popping up again in a chapter called The Three Sisters. When Esperanza's friends, uh, the sisters Lucy and Rachel, their baby sister dies and the family holds awake in the house. And there are three aunts there. And that they, they seem to possess some sort of spooky auntie gifts. Uh, Esperanza is like super creeped out because she's never seen a, a dead person before. And they try to comfort her. And then they also give her a little palm reading and they say, make a wish. And they're like, we have a feeling your wish is going to come true. And, you know, her wish is obviously get the fuck out of here. And one of the aunts tells her that she, quote, will always be Mango Street, which seems kind of disheartening if you're 13 and you want to get the fuck out. Well, you can leave. But you'll You're always, always going to have it in you. Oh, yeah. And that, you know, if she leaves, she must always promise to come back for those who cannot leave as easily. And that she says goodbye and then she never sees them again. So Esperanza has a conversation with Alicia where she talks about how she's sad that she, you know, doesn't have a home that she's proud of and can point to. And Alicia says basically the same thing that the auntie said that, you know, whether you like it or not, you know, you are Mango Street and one day you are going to come back. And Esperanza's like, mm, no, not unless someone goes and makes it better. And Alicia's like, who the fuck is going to do that? The mayor? And Esperanza laughs because she's like, yeah, no. And so, you know, saying it's up to you to make it better. And that Esperanza dreams of having a house that's her own, that it's not a man's house. It does not belong to a husband or a father. It is her house. So at this point, the, the home isn't even just like a nice space for her family anymore. It's a space for her. It's not just wanting to live somewhere that doesn't suck. It's wanting to have a place that is solely her own, where she can be her own person. 
And so the book ends with a chapter called Mango Says Goodbye Sometimes, where Esperanza tells us that she likes to tell stories and that she's going to tell us a story about a girl who didn't want to belong. And she talks about all the streets that her family has lived. And the one that she remembers the most is the house on Mango Street. And that writing helps her feel better. It helps her feel like she can escape from her environment and, you know, that it makes things real. And that she knows that Mango will say goodbye sometimes and that she'll she'll leave it and it says you know and that she's still stuck there now at least now in the present tense of the the novel but she knows she's going to say goodbye to it someday and that she imagines that you know her neighbors and her friends will all wonder where she's gone and that they'll not know that she's gone away to come back eventually someday for all the people that she's left behind and so like I said before, we can assume, you know, because Cisneros has said so much of this is based on her own emotions and feelings and that her and Esperanza are pretty closely linked and it's a good insight into why she probably ain't never married nobody. And so for the most part, that's the house on Mango Street. There are sort of uncategorizable stuff, like a chapter that's just about a kid who points at different clouds and says that's where God lives. Or Esperanza and her friends talking about how Eskimos have a bunch of different words for snow, which turns into a fight where they insult each other's moms. And, you know, even as an adult with an attention span and an appreciation for good prose, I'm just like, okay, neat. But there's also really pretty sections that are, they don't really sort of belong anywhere. And one of them is called Four Skinny Trees. And I just want to read that real quick. And that's what we'll end on because it's, it's nice. And we just read a lot of things that are not particularly nice. (laughs) So this is called Four Skinny Trees and says, They are the only ones who understand me. I am the only one who understands them. Four skinny trees with skinny necks and pointy elbows like mine. Four who do not belong here but are here. Four raggedy excuses planted by the city. From our room we can hear them, but Nenny just sleeps and doesn't appreciate these things. Their strength is secret. They send ferocious roots beneath the ground. They grow up and they grow down and they grab the earth between their hairy toes and bite the sky with violent teeth and never quit their anger. This is how they keep. Let one forget his reason for being, they'd all droop like tulips in a glass, each with their arms around the other. Keep, 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 trees say when I sleep. They teach. When I am too sad and too skinny to keep keeping, when I am a tiny thing against so many bricks, then it is I look at trees. When there's nothing left to look at on this street. Four who grew despite concrete. Four who reach and do not forget to reach. Four whose only reason is to be and be. S? That's the house on Mango Street. It's a lot for 13-year-olds, I think. (laughs) It is. It's tough out there for a 13-year-old. It is, as this is indicative. Or at least specific (laughs) 13-year-olds. So in the realm of adaptations, uh... Despite the book retaining popularity in the almost 40 years that it's been in print, it was only just announced literally a few months ago, like back in January, that it will be getting its first adaptation as a TV show, which makes sense given sort of the episodic vignette nature of the stories. It's going to be uh, helmed by the producer of Narcos, make of that what you will. Uh, Apparently Cisneros has for years resisted any adaptation of the book, which when you look at a lot of adaptations is a pretty fair and reasonable stance. However, in a Deadline article from January that discussed the coming adaptation, uh, she's quoted as saying, quote, I write because the world we live in is a house on fire and the people we love are burning. Television has grown up in the last 20 years and now is the time to tell our stories. So if you enjoy the book, keep an eye on that one. 
it's coming probably next year or something. The CBS America's Most Watched Network? Probably Netflix if it's being made by the guy who made Narcos. And so that brings us to the part of the show that we always get to. And that is, hey, RJ. So how, how about them dolphins? Tua. <laughs> I guess that'll be kind of old news by the time this comes out. I suppose so. <laughs> so the house on Mango Street. Yep. Good or bad? I say bueno. <laughs> Muy bueno? Muy bueno. It's important for people of different backgrounds. So for a writer who is both a person of color and identified as a woman to get her voice out there and to speak from what she sees within her community and tells their stories. So good. Not all stories happen to have good endings in real life. Sometimes life sucks. A lot of times life sucks with varying degrees. And therefore, while life may be muy mal, a house on Mango Street, muy bueno. Should it be muy bien? Muy bien. Are we being racist right now? It's very good. Okay. Hey, Megan. Yeah, RJ? The house on Mango Street that does not have the staircase we all dream of. No. Good or bad. So, I definitely didn't appreciate it enough as a kid, but as we talked about, I I was a tiny little slut for YA fantasy and that was kind of about it. Uh, But the language feels true to a young person while also maintaining a a very beautiful sort of lyricism that uh, reminds me a lot of when we read If Beale Street Could Talk. It reminds me a lot of like James Baldwin. It's a well-written book. Like that's obviously not an issue here. It's a very quick read because it is, you know, at the end of the day for tweens, even though it has really heavy subject matter. And so here I have to bring up like a potentially stupid and or divisive kind of question, which it ties into that horrible thing they did in Arizona, um, which is, is this book for me anyway? Or, or was it for me then? Like, obviously, it's a good thing to have on a curriculum. Representation is incredibly important. Kids need to see themselves not just in protagonists and stories, but in writers that are not the white American male. And it's important for, you know, for white kids too, obviously, in the sense of experience a story outside of your own personal bubble. Like, that's, that's pretty key. So it, it didn't resonate with me, which is weird, because it wasn't like holding Caulfield, the whiny rich kid, where I was like, can't relate. You know, this was a girl about my age who also wrote things that didn't feel like she fit in anywhere, and yet that didn't reach out and grab me in a way that it does now as an adult that I feel like it ought to have. And I don't know why. I don't know, was it because I was white or, you know, I mean, at the lower end, but still definitely like middle class, or was it just because I, I, I read pretty crappy books at the time. I don't know, this got away from me a little bit, but in the end, I feel like this is a book that was primarily directed, you know, not just at girls, but very specifically at the, like, Latina or Chicano female experience, and I could appreciate it now as an adult, but, like, maybe I'm not the one it was supposed to resonate with the most, you know? Does that make sense? Yeah. I don't want to sound like we should only read things that we can relate to because that's bullshit, But also, not everything we read is going to be explicitly for us, and in that case, it might not jive with us, and, you know, that doesn't change its objective worth. Unless it's Heart of Darkness. Fuck that book. Harsh. House of Mango Street? Good. Obviously. And that will about do it for this episode of Ono Lit Class. 
If you've wondered why we struggle with certain topics or don't, or there are books where we're like, maybe we won't do that because we don't know how to make it funny, this is why. You get an episode that's really more about Iowa and college mascots. This is very true. <laughs> but we did our best, and it is a good book, and we really want to try to acknowledge writers who are not just the typical white male literary canon, and we're doing our best, gosh darn it, and... If you appreciate that we're doing our best, uh, we appreciate you. And we also appreciate if you would, you know, leave a review, subscribe, tell your friends, tell your family, tell your enemies, tell your neighbors. Just lean out the window and be like, hey, I'm socially distancing from you by not coming into your home like Tom Brady would. But you should check out this podcast. It's called Oh No Lit Class. It's pretty dope. You can follow us on Twitter at Pod. You can join our Facebook group. You can get a bunch of cool stuff in our store at onolitclass.threadless.com uh, or support us on Patreon. And links to all of these things are available at onolitclass.com. Our next episode will be on May 14th. Until then, I'm Megan. I'm RJ. We love you. Bye. Bye. You know, Providence the Black Cat <laughs> is not a mascot yet, so he's also free. He's our mascot. Oh, yeah, what the fuck are you talking about? Our cat, our cat has been our mascot for ages now. He's on promotional material. He's. <laughs> <laughs>